Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, so we're going to finish up the letter of Ephesians in Ephesians 6. Um, as an overview to Ephesians, before we get into the final chapter, there are um, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing, remember, from Rome. And he's writing perhaps his last letter, we don't know. Uh, but we do know that he's on the last chapter of his life. He's going to go before Caesar. That's the moment that he's getting ready for. And he's writing a letter to the Ephesians where he spent uh, a couple years in Ephesus building that church. And these are his friends, his his family and the faith, the people he knows and he loves, um, and the people that he wants to uh, just say farewell to. And and they might be worried because he's in jail, and in a Roman jail that means you're going to die because Caesar really doesn't give pardons. Um, so they know that this is probably going to be Paul's, one of the last times they hear from him. So in Ephesians 1, Paul's encouraging them, and he says, just remember that you're saved and you have an inheritance in Christ. Um, and then in Ephesians 2, he says, you know, we used to be dead, but now we're alive. And as citizens, we have everyone who believes is a brother and sister. So another kind of word of consolation. And then in chapter three, he says that what's great about this is we get to share the eternal mystery, something that used to be hidden, and now it's not hidden. And that mystery is that Christ is the Messiah and that he's risen from the dead. Um, so another kind of just take your attention off Paul and put it on just the joy of what we have. And then in Ephesians 4, he shifts and he, and, he, and he gives them kind of his hope or prayer for them. And that is that they'll walk worthy of the calling of Christ. That's what they need to focus on, not the fact that Paul's in prison. And then in Ephesians 5, he gives them kind of advice in how to walk in, in that worthiness. And that is to walk in love to walk in the light of Christ and to walk in the wisdom that's given. And he starts in that wisdom that if you do this kind of walking, it starts with marriages. It starts with those two people deciding to be a family. Um, and in a marriage, you love one another in such a way that other people can see how much you adore each other. In extravagant, over-the-top ways we love each other in such a way that the world doesn't understand how a human being can love another human being that much. And that's what marriages should look like. So he starts with those marriages and he compares them to how Jesus loves the church and that as Jesus gave his life for the church, marriages should look the same way. Don't get married if you're not willing to give your life to that person. And that's what makes the rest of the world um, confounded because it just doesn't look like uh, how the world would have marriages act, where you're constantly in some sort of struggle with each other. Um, so he starts with the marriages and that there's sacrificial love there that makes no sense to a fallen, fallen world. Ephesians 6 picks up right at that point and instead of move, and now he moves from marriages to children that would be the natural product of a loving marriage. Um, and in Ephesians 6, we're going to start in verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Having two kids of my own, I love that verse 
it's always easy to love the verses where it's telling other people what to do. Um, but, but also being a child of a father, um, I love this verse too. There's a beauty here in that children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And he's referring to Deuteronomy 5.16. That it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So Paul gives a reason for this one. And he's and, and when, when, a, when a writer gives a reason for something he says, it's because he believes the listener might need that reason. Um, it's not in, intuitive. It's not implicit. As a kid gets older, the first thing they discover is all the faults and failings of their parents, that they're human too, that they're sinners too, that they're not worthy of the adoration that they gave when they were five years old. So that's a moment in a kid's life when you realize, wow, I know, I know as much as my parents do about a topic, or even better, as you get your interests and expertise, I know more than my parents about this topic. So there will be things where a kid deals with a parent and says, I just know more than you on these things. I've spent more time on it. I have more experience with it. And then you get to this kind of thing. So notice in, as the family moves from parents loving one another to then expressing that love for their kids, that the word children there is without gender. So it's not showing preference to males or females. It's basically saying your offspring. So children uh, of any of either gender obey your parents in the Lord for its right to do that is the rationale that Paul gives it. He's basically saying with children that Hebrew word has an implicit uh, uh, an implication of kids at a young age. So children at a young age aren't necessarily uh, um, uh, aren't necessarily adult kids that maybe have meet that moment yet. So when kids are young, the idea is to obey your parents, uh, parents. And there's, um, and when they get older, verse two, you honor your parents. So there's a transition between just obeying them and then as you get older, honoring them. There's no regard to um, disobedience here, of course, because that comes natural to kids. And if you think of what comes natural to humanity, it's natural for kids to disobey their parents. In fact, that's one of the initial struggles when you get a kid in your house and they get old enough to have their, they can move around on their own legs and do their own things. The first thing they do is stuff that you have to start directing and guiding them what to do and what not to do. And kids will test their parents. Um, they, I, I remember when Grant was trying to test things and he would walk over by the outlet on the house because we were teaching him not to mess with the outlets. And he would walk over by the outlet and he would then turn and stop and look back at me or mom and say, with that look of like, what's going to happen when I go close to this outlet? Like, are you going to stop me? And he would have this look of total rebellion on his face when he did it. Um, and of course, you tune into your kids and say, I wouldn't do that. Um, at some point, kids are going to do it to see what happens. So disobedience comes natural to kids. Obedience is easier for kids because their parents are the center of their world um, and their parents are the rule in their life. So when parents don't give order and structure uh, and there's nothing to obey, then kids can get wild and they can get more and more defiant. And as they get older, that defiance gets worse and worse and worse. When they're young, it's fairly easy to obey your parents because they're so much bigger than you and they know everything. Um, and as you get older, then it gets harder to do that. That can be aggravating for kids. So it's a key to teach kids to learn obedience as they're young so that they can grow up and do that. And as they get older, that obedience turns into honor. 
So Paul reminds us that there's a reason for this because kids naturally go that way. So as Paul is in verse one talking to kids, he's saying, first of all, with young kids, obey your parents because it's right. And if you look at very various moral frameworks as we age developmentally, younger kids have a moral framework that has right and wrong, and they have a very tough time seeing differences between those two. There's the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. And they don't really have a complex moral system. So Paul gives them a very simple moral reason for, for obeying their parents, and that is because it's the right thing to do. Uh, and with younger kids, sometimes that's you don't need much more justification than that. With the honoring them, where he's dealing, I think, with older uh, kids of older kids of, of um, with their parents, that honor has to start to take its place. And with that, he gives more complex reasoning. And that is, first of all, that it's the first command. So it's one of God's Ten Commandments, which is essentially saying that it's the right thing to do. And then he also says that he may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. You're going to get blessing and long life if you obey your parents. I think part of that is because even as the parents get smaller as we age and parents know less as we age, um, they also have our best interest in mind all the way up through their dying day. Parents really never have their kids' disinterest in mind. So when parents give advice or parents encourage kids in a direction, it's generally always for the kid's benefit. So living longer comes with listening to people who are always on your side. And there's rarely a duplicity. They're the only people in the world that you can completely trust to have your best interest in mind. That is if they're godly parents, right? So rebellion in this sense, and we often think of rebellion in our culture as kids rebelling against their parents. Paul has a very different take on this. Think of how he flips this on its head. The assumption here is that the natural state of kids is to rebel against their parents. The natural state is for them to gravitate towards media and books and songs that encourage their own rebellion. That's the natural state. The true rebellion then is to rebel against that, to rebel against what everybody else does. And in fact, in American culture, to honor your parents is almost under attack. Imagine as a high school, uh, uh, as a high school junior or a senior just saying, I love my parents, I respect them, they're amazing people. Even going into college saying, you know, I got to get home this weekend because I need to honor my parents. And even use the word honor, suddenly you're stepping away from this culture. In fact, real rebellion isn't to disrespect parents. Real rebellion is to show incredible respect for parents and to make that something you talk about with other people. And it's a way to say that you're different. In the same way that a husband and wife who hold hands walking down the street in their old age will get either kind of people thinking, oh, that's traditional, archaic, um, repressive marriage structures, or you'll get people to say, oh, that's so sweet. I wish I could be in my 80s holding hands with my spouse. In the exact same way, kids that honor their parents, even as they go into adulthood, show a uncommon, unworldly respect and godliness that really only comes from the Holy Spirit. When what's natural is to disregard and disrespect parents as you get older, to do what's unnatural becomes rebellion. I think it's impressive to see that because when you reject your parents and you defy them, that is essentially going to represent a heart that is selfish. When you honor them, even when you have got more skills, experience, even as you grow into your adulthood and, and, and have different expertise than your parents do, 
to still honor them and respect them and elevate them in other people's eyes shows a very close family structure and it's a way to witness to people. Wow, that's uncommon. I don't see people that honor their parents like you do. That's incredible. And you can say, we do it because we're believers. And God tells me to honor my parents and that it's good for me and that it's going to be well with me if I do that. So notice here that Paul's talking to kids. He's not talking to parents. It's not the parent's job to demand obedience in this particular passage. Proverbs says some things about that. But in this context, Paul's addressing the children directly because the obedience and the honor has to come out of a good heart. That's the whole point of the obedience and honor is that if it comes from a place where you have a godly heart or you're trying to be godly in life, this is how we walk worthy, how we walk in the light, how we walk in wisdom. And you fathers, now he addresses the parents, instead of demanding obedience, look at what Paul tells the fathers to do. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bringing up, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So in Paul's eyes, if you're trying to walk worthy, there's no place for mean, harsh, cruel parenting. Kids are not your servants. They're a blessing in your life and you need to treat them that way. Roman and even later Jewish traditions saw paternal authority as absolute. That when mom or dad says something, there's absolutely no crossing them. But that's not the vision that Paul has here. In love, when people act in love, that temptation to push your values and virtues on your children and to force them into it, even through cruel, demanding, tyrannical parenting, is the, op the opposite is what Paul asked for. He asked for patience, right? Don't provoke them, right? Training and teaching and admonishing is to training. He's talking about teaching them how to live, how to walk. It's not just Bible study training, though that's, I think, included. But the idea of training there is teaching them all sorts of things in life. And I know for me, at least, when I'm trying to teach something, as a parent, you get impatient. I know this from when I've taken my daughter driving. And part of it is when you're driving, you know how to drive just fine, and you're waiting for somebody to learn to drive. And that can be a very aggravating experience, especially when they run a red light or they... Um, come into a slamming stop at a stop sign. Your tendency is to provoke them and say, knock it off. But that's, I think, what we do in the flesh. What we do in the spirit is we try to be patient and we understand that they make mistakes and they might get a fender bender and it's just a car versus that relationship with the child that's far more important. And by the way, I'm guilty of all of those examples. Being a good teacher is not natural to a parent. Being an irritated, impatient teacher is absolutely natural to a parent because you can't understand why they can't get this as quickly as you think they should. And you forget very easily how long it took you to learn those things when you were that age. I think for insecure parents, sometimes it's even a personal, when you see that your kid can't get something that you feel like they should be able to get, then you can get irritated with them. And oftentimes you get fathers that are the worst about this. Paul's not even talking to the moms, right? Because fathers think their kids should be superstar athletes. And that patience has to kind of happen. I like the phrase in verse 4 that says, but bring them up. To bring somebody with, that word implies in the Greek a cultivating or a growing nature or a fondness of care. Like people who talk to their plants as they raise them. It's a long-term kind of idea to bring them up. And it also has to do with nurturing or bringing something forward with you. It's a side-by-side -side living life with your kids 
in fondness. You can't be a weekend warrior parent. You need to spend time with your kids every day. Talk to them every day. You bring them up with fondness. So there's an admonishment at the end of this verse, admonishment of the Lord. It's not the parent's admonishment that matters. It's the Lord's admonishment that matters. So you have this idea that what parents should be doing is speaking for the Lord. And the only way to do that is to speak the word to your kids. So to teach the word of God, to know the word of God well enough to when you see your kids being tempted with sin, you can point them to the Bible, not to your own opinion. And that's one way to not provoke your children. Don't be mad at me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And a lot of times kids don't want to hear what the Bible says, but a parent's job is to admonish to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So both the training and the admonition should be what the Lord would want for those kids. If parents are teaching their kids how to drink, that is not the training of the Lord. If they're teaching their kids how to speed on the roads, that is not the training of the Lord. That's the training of the flesh. So to have that training and admonition be of the Lord, uh, it has a strong implication that we're doing, that we're talking about people that are trying to walk worthy. Paul's talking to believers in Ephesus. So that admonition also can come with training um, and it can be done just right. So the training is not just left to mom. The training is not left to teachers. It's not left to Sunday school classes. In this particular passage, the responsibility for training and admonition in the Lord is on the father's. It's on the dad, and Paul respects that there's an order to the household. I think sometimes in the flesh, training is natural to moms, that there is a tendency there. There are differences between the genders, regardless of what culture wants to say. And we have a thing where Paul's talking to dads that they need to take on that role of training and not just hand it off to other people or trust that other people will do it. It's their responsibility. So bond servants, Paul's going to shift over to bond servants. So again, in, at the end of the last chapter, husbands and wives love each other in an unnatural, holy way. Now it's kids and parents love one another, or kids and fathers, in an unnatural, holy way. And now five, bond servants, read that as employees or workers, be obedient to those who are your masters, read that as bosses, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Lots to cover in these verses. First of all, I'm going to point to the end of verse 5. All of this is as to Christ. If you're not a believer, if you're not making an effort to walk worthy, these rules just don't apply, right? If you haven't made a commitment to the Lord, then how we act in the workplace doesn't really make much difference. Act however you want to act. But as to Christ becomes the justification of all of these passages for Paul, that's the reason why we do things, and it's the direction for how we do things. So how do we give our service to Christ? We give it with a free heart with a loving heart. How do we give, our, how do we give our, our work and our time to the Lord? We do it with fear and trembling, with a sincerity of heart. And we turn off our beeping phones before we get into a teaching. Sorry. <laughs> employees, Christian employees, work hard. 
I like to think of it as you work even when people aren't watching you work. And I remember when I first got my first few jobs in high school and I was working in restaurants, if the manager wasn't around, I was a noticeable difference in how non-Christian employees would stop working. They would just do less when the boss wasn't around. And I came to respect the people that worked hard even when the boss wasn't watching them. And those are also the moments that I think people find employees that work when they're not being told to work. They work because they believe that that is their job and responsibility. They've taken on that work because they've done it. And that's what it means when it says, don't, not just with eye service. Don't just work when people are watching you with their eyes. You work because you've done it as you work to Christ. And Christ isn't always necessarily um, physically, and, and you can't see Christ standing next to you. But we as employees believe Christ is always watching us. As servants of Christ, we always think that. Don't do it with eye service. Don't just be a kiss-up at work or a brown noser, right? Serve gratefully and thankfully with a chance to earn. I think fearfully and trem- with fear and trembling is you could lose that job. Be grateful that you have it. So when you have a boss that's wanting you to do things, you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and you take care of it and you get it done. So you, but it's by doing the will of God. So this is completely different from human nature. Humble jobs are God's for you. So humble jobs are God's will for you and you treat that job as God's calling. So if you're mowing lawns, as I did, as I did in college, if you're going to mow lawns, you do it as though that's what God's called you to do today. So you mow that lawn as though you're mowing the lawn of Paul the disciple or Jesus himself. You take it on where every blade of grass is what you pay attention to, right? And if they want that lawn mowed in two directions where you mow it all in one set of rows and then you do another set of rows, you get this nice beautiful crosshatch. You do that kind of lawn mowing because you're doing it as though you're doing the will of God in your life. That's important. We don't take that lightly. The end of verse 6, do the will of God from the heart. If you do any job that you have, whatever is put in front of you, do it to the glory of God. If you drive a bus and they tell you to clean it, don't just slop through the bus at the end of your route. Take the time to clean it. Do it right. Take pride in the fact that your bus is the best one in the lot. Other people in the flesh... (laughs) are going to see this as being a person of eye service because they can't imagine why anyone would work that hard if they're not trying to get some sort of promotion or pay raise or get something from their employer. But Christians do it because they want to honor the Lord. It's not to get a pay raise. However, if you work like this, you will be more valuable to your employer than the other people that are just working in the flesh and that are just working for the money. Promotions come with a good attitude and employers are going to see that. They're going to see people that work with a good attitude and work when they're not being told, you know, being lorded over or managed. So this is an interesting thing. And you could say, but my boss is mean. My boss is cruel. My boss is harsh. I don't get paid enough. There's lots of things in the flesh we can say about work saying, I'm really glad I have a job and I'm glad even if it's minimum wage and I don't like it and it's miserable, at least I have work to do because God's called me through the Sabbath law to work for six days a week. But it doesn't say what kind of work you're called to do. It just says you're supposed to work. So working six days a week, even at a job where you make very little money, is better in God's eyes than not working. So any work is better than no work. That's a 
convicting argument for people that like more than one day off a week, right? Is that there's something that you should be doing with that time for the glory of God. This also comes at a historical time when Roman slavery was the worst it's ever gotten historically. It was brutal. It was dehumanizing. It was absolutely cruel and harsh. Roman owners of slaves could do the worst things to their slaves. And there was zero accountability. There wasn't even a, a, a biblical sense of morality around it. It was just pure power of humans over other pure humans in the most cruel kinds of ways. So Paul says this to bond servants at a time in history when it, the masters were the worst, not even comparable to any other time in history. It was comply as a slave or die, and the master would kill you on the spot, spot with no legal ramifications and no moral community obligations to be a kind and a good person as you had employees. So at this time in history, the only two choices were to comply with your owner or to die. And Paul gives them a third option. You don't have to just obey or die. You can obey with joy. That's a third option. And think of what this does. There isn't a cause to kill you because you're actually doing your job, but it undermines the force of the master when you comply with joy. If you have a mean and a harsh master and you do and you work 20 times as hard as anybody next to you, first of all, the mean, harsh master has no reason to be mean or harsh to you. So we've taken away the need to punish, but they also don't control you because you're doing more than what you have to do. So not only do they have not have a reason to be mean to you, they don't have a reason to boss you around at all. So suddenly they're not really bossing you around. You're listening to a, a higher level boss. Paul gives the Christian people a third option in bond service or in slavery or in employment, however you want to phrase that, whatever economic system you're in, to simply be joyful in the ability to do work no matter what the job is. Do it with a good heart. This is a political force of nature. This is going to change the Roman world. This behavior, these few verses, set up a psychological and an economic framework where there is no slavery because no one chooses to be a slave to anybody but God. And the service you give to human beings is simply not one of ownership. You're not doing it because you have to. You're doing it because you want to, which takes the ownership of your work back to you. This is a powerful philosophical force. It's amazing. It's brilliant. So... It's almost like Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do to change the world. And he gives a rationale for this one too in verse 8. He will receive the same from the Lord whether he's slave or free. So the way in which we work joyfully from other people, basically Paul gives a final promise, and this is a bold promise, that God's going to pay you back for that. The injustice that you experience, God's going to take care of that and it will make it just at some point. So this is a kind of liberation theology that's not liberation theology. You don't forcibly take ownership of things from the people that own things. You don't fight for these things. You simply do the work with a joyful heart. And that's the payback. The justice is there. You think of Joseph who was sold into slavery, and instead of being a compliant, obedient slave, and instead of being a disrespectful, defiant, maybe dead slave, Joseph just works harder than anybody around him, and he does it with joy. 
And at this point, the other slaves think the guy's nuts. Potiphar's wife thinks he's nuts and actually hates him for doing that. And you've got other people and, and, and he finds himself in a jail cell and his work is to counsel other people in the jail cells. Joseph just constantly does whatever's in front of him with a joyful heart. And at the end of the day, God takes care of the justice, not Joseph. And at the end of the day, at the end of the end of the day, Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in the country because he's trustworthy. He's honorable and he works hard and God has blessed him with insights that he doesn't bless other people with. And he prophetically helps Joseph get, get the attention of the Pharaoh and he works for the Pharaoh just as hard as he works for Potiphar and just as hard as he worked for his dad. So Joseph does exactly what Paul's asking and provides a great example of that. Verse 9, Paul flips the relationship. And you, masters, do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. I'll go back through this. Employers, you're supposed to work hard too. <laughs> and you, masters, do the same things to them. The same things is referring to what we just told the bondservants. If you're supposed to work hard with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, not with eye service, not as a men pleaser, but as a bondservant doing the will of God from the heart, masters do the same things. Work hard. Don't just work when people are watching you. Work as hard or harder than your employees so that your employees can see, man, my boss works his tail off. He's here early, stays late, does the job, has, uh, has, is the first in line to do the work. And to take that leadership means that you do those same things. And then the next prepositional phrase is give up threatening. A boss should never have to demand or threaten people that work for them. This is a tough concept. If you have godly employees, you never have to threaten them. They do the job with a happy heart. If you have obedient employees, they work, but they resent it and they're upset about it and they think they deserve more pay. They just think they deserve more features. They deserve a better office chair. They've always got something to complain about. Now this gets a little hard because you don't need to threaten them. They are doing the job, but they're doing it with a discontent heart. So how do you treat those employees? First, and threatening them won't help. So you can ignore them, but it becomes a tougher thing to do. If you're doing the same things, you're going to work hard. Maybe you start picking up the slack for, for employees that aren't doing the job. Because if your master's in heaven and there's no partiality with him, God doesn't care if you're the boss or if you're the employee. The heart's where it's coming from. This gets to be even more unnatural when you have employees that are absolutely defiant against you and they're talking behind your back, or they're trying to rally the troops to be against you. Well, how do you treat them in that case? Well, you don't threaten them. So if I give up threatening, it means there's never a case when I threaten, even when I have employees that are rebelling. So at some point, this is a tough thing to do. This is not natural, and it's not in the flesh, and it makes no sense in a worldly sense. But remember, Paul's talking to Christians, and he's saying, as Christians, what do you do? And if you are having people be defiant against you and the work's not getting done, you just step in and do the work, right? I remember being at a dinner get-together and people were complaining about men and women and the gender differences. And they were arguing about how horrible it is that, that people just assume that the females in the room will do this work or that work. And quietly, without saying a word, 
one of the females in the room got up and started collecting the dishes. And the irony was painfully obvious. And it was, I think, a, just a gracious and a godly thing to do. And that was to be a female and to serve is not the horrible thing. To be a female and have a bitter heart about serving is a horrible thing. And as she got up to do it, two other guys in the room got up and started bussing the dishes too. So the complainers about things are having people serve them in the same way that they're accusing others of demanding people serve them. And they sat there like lords and, 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 um, and took advantage of the people that were basically serving them right under their nose while they complained. And the image is always stuck in my head. Fairness is one thing. Partiality is another. If there is no partiality with God, that's an interesting word. It means to have clear measures and reward based on impartiality. So there's no partiality with him. He does not take things partially. He does things impartially. So there's two, present, two, uh, two ideas here. If there's a happy person that serves in the employee role, there needs to be a happy person to serve in the master's role too not without threats and not to say either do your do your work or lose your job it's to either do your work or i'm going to model for you what it looks like to work with a happy heart let me coach you and train you and teach you so that you can see what that looks like now obviously in the workplace there are hard times where bosses have to let people go because you're paying people to do a job so there are times when a master has to let a bond servant go from their service because they're not doing the job especially in our economy but to do everything you can do to keep that trust as long as possible until that trust is actually broken by the employee and they're willing to learn, then you keep coaching and you keep teaching and you try to model for them what work looks like. And at the end of the day, sometimes you need to let people go. So there shouldn't ever be a need to threaten. You either have an employer that does their job and they're happy to do it. You have an employer that does their job and they're unhappy to do it. Or you have an employee that doesn't do their job and you need to let them go. But threats aren't necessary. You don't need to do that. So serve where you can, serve well. And um, there, may, there may be times where you feel partial to people or other people, but God says you don't. there's no partiality. You don't treat some of your employees better than other employees. You treat them consistently, you treat them fairly, and you treat them in truth. So there's two principles to take away from this. First of all, if you have employees that act this way, they basically have the boss that's in heaven and they don't honor that some humans are over other humans. And you don't need to do that with those employees. From a, from a boss perspective, it takes away the need for slavery completely. It completely undermines the slavery system. If you have people that work with joy and you have people that never threaten, you don't essentially have slavery anymore. You don't need it. There's, so, there's, and the, so the second major principle is here, it takes away all spirit of slavery. It ends it, right? There's no fight. There's no revolution. There's no slavery. You just have people that are happy to work and other people that know how to organize work. And those two things make things function and, and, and they do it well. However, this gets messed up when you have Christian employees and unchristian bosses. When you have unchristian employees and Christian bosses, this formula just doesn't work. And when you have that mix, and remember Paul's talking to Christians that are trying to walk worthy, 
that can be a light to the world when you see an organization that functions with these Christian principles. But when you have people that don't function that way, it breaks everything down. Bosses that never threaten with employees that are unwilling and disgruntled and angry, those bosses aren't going to be around very long because they won't get the work done that needs to get done in their unit. They're probably going to get fired. But Paul doesn't explain that situation at all. This is interesting. Paul simply says, if you're trying to work where they do this, it's better as a boss to get fired acting like a Christian than it is to not act like a Christian and keep your job. It's better to walk away from a company when you don't have the support you need from your administration or your, your higher bosses to do your job than it is to stay there and act in a way that's ungodly. So if the only way to get the work done as a, as a boss is to start threatening people, what are you going to choose to do? Are you going to choose to believe the Bible or are you going to start threatening people to get work done because you're desperate because your bosses are telling you you have to get certain things done? This is a tough situation. Paul's not talking about that situation. He's talking about believers. And even if believers are in this situation, you can individually be a light by just being an agent of peace in those situations, by not entering into the arguments, not bickering, not threatening, not getting into it, not showing partiality or favoritism towards people. Just continue to get up every day with fear and trembling, knowing that when you act like this, you will get into these conflicts with other people that aren't acting like Christians. Verse 10, and this is, I think, exactly where Paul goes with it. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Great verse. You can put it on your wall. This is getting to the end of the letter. Finally, this is the whole point of it. The whole point of walking worthy, walking in the light, walking in wisdom. Being good does lead to these situations. So if you husbands and wives love each other in this kind of supernatural way, if kids and parents love each other in this supernatural way, if employees and bosses love each other and act that way in this kind of supernatural way, wow, you can be a light to the world. But be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might because you're about to come into some conflicts. And Paul remembers sitting in a Roman prison for loving people and acting the way he's advising people. He is, he's practiced what he preached. You will not thrive in this world, on this earth, with earthly people living in sin all around you. You won't thrive if you do these things with those people. You will thrive in your marriages. So I think Paul starts at the easiest place. It only takes two people to have a loving marriage and you get to pick who you marry. Should be the easiest one. You don't get to pick your kids and sometimes you get defiant kids. So now you've got a little more complexity and boy, in the workplace, you really don't get to choose your colleagues and you really don't get to choose your bosses. And sometimes you really don't get to pick the staff that works for you as you take a new job and come in as a boss or a manager or an administrator or whatever word you want to give it. You don't get to pick the people you work with. So this third set of relationships is absolutely the toughest. And that's the whole point. If we do our part, God can use us in those situations and inspire people and we can change the world. It's that simple. If it's all in the Lord, verse 10, in the Lord, then you walk worthy in the Lord, you walk in the light in the Lord, and you walk in wisdom in the Lord. That's the whole point, my brothers and sisters, is that we do things in the Lord and we are strong in the Lord. So I, just to go back through those ideas again, love your wives in the Lord. 
Husbands or wives, love your husbands in the Lord. Kids, love your parents in the Lord. Parents, love your kids in the Lord. Employees, love your bosses in the Lord and bosses, love your employees in the Lord. This is the Christian version of a war cry. This is the orders for the soldiers of the Lord. This is what troops do when they're going to get into battle is they know what their orders are and what their commands are. So why do you need to be strong in doing this? This sounds like something weak Christians do, but it's not weak Christians. To do this kind of love takes a strength that defies understanding. If we do all of these things that Paul's asking, we will not be liked, but you'd think we would. We're just being nice people. But being nice people in this world, sadly, does not get you liked. So Paul tells them to get strength before he's going to give them gear to do this in the next few verses. All of this is context for his final piece of advice. If you're acting God-like, then people that have rejected God will not like what they see. And this is, a, this is an amazing phenomenon, right? If you want to abandon your human nature, you're joining a different team. Right? Jack Black said, I don't trust anybody who doesn't like Led Zeppelin. Well, I don't like Led Zeppelin. What they're saying is evil. The message that they have is not godly. Right? So if I don't like them, I'm not trusted by Jack Black. Don't, doesn't Jack Black care about if I love and care about him? No, it really comes down to what music you listen to. And I know he's joking. But you hear phrases like that a lot in the world. If they don't drink with me, then I don't trust them. Really? Drinking is the thing that you use to judge human character? Yeah, that's what they use, right? So if you abandon what comes natural to the flesh and you choose to do something that's more godly, you will have people that know that you've picked another team. So happy families, working with goodwill, being joyful, that's a battle stance in this situation. It's a banner you put up. It's a master strategy of Christians to do what God's told us to do because God knows human nature and he knows that that's the battleground. Being nice means you need to have strength in the Lord. This is such a powerful, in context, this verse is so powerful. Notice here that it's not our might, it's God's power, right? It's not our, it's not our power, it's his might. It's his armor that we're going to put on. It's amazing how just being good brings the battles, but it's true. And for those battles, you need armor. And, and you're also, it's not your armor, it's God's armor that you're going to put on in the next verse. So you do all these things in the power of the might, in the power of his might. Isn't it amazing that God's might is endless? So where our strength fails, God's might is what we need. When we can see the world falling apart, when our marriages are struggling, when our kids are rebelling, when our bosses are threatening, when our employees are rebelling, do we turn to our own strength and fight those battles? No, it's God's stuff. And God's stuff is the opposite of what our flesh does, says. When people treat us unjustly at work, our heart wants to find justice now, but it's not our justice that matters. It's God's justice that matters. And there's no partiality with God. He'll fight those battles. So you watch everything happen and you start to see things happen and you think this is so unfair. The gossip is so unfair. The, the, the workload that boss is putting on my fellow employee, it's so unfair. And you start to put on the armor of God because the battle is coming. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. 
that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Your job is to stand, to do what you've been told to do. And you think of what it takes to stand. And the language turns very combative here. And in the flesh, we think, well, Christians are being told to go to combat. Yeah, but our combat is to hold our wife's hand, to give our adult kid a hug in public. I mean, that's our battle cry, is to be grateful for the people that work for you, to be joyful when you're asked to do more by your boss because they trust you and they're asking more of you. Instead of complaining, we take it with joy. That's what we do to fight. So keep that in context as we shift our language into combat gear. The combat for us is to love one another. That's our battle. That's how we stand in doing this. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. If you have a strong marriage, honorable kids, hard-working work life, and you lead other people with fairness, get ready for the fight of your life because Satan hates this stuff. And that's what Paul's explaining here. Some react to this with joy and friendship and fellowship and respect and honor, brother and sisterhood in Christ. And, and, and just in context, evil people never think that they're evil. You don't meet an evil person and they say, yeah, I decided I was going to be evil today. The most horrible people in the world usually think they're good. And in fact, in my experience, the most evil people I've ever met are people that call themselves Christians. They are convinced that what they're doing is right, but they don't bother to read the word of God. It's not important to them. It's archaic. Evil people are almost, even in Jesus' time, were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the religious people. This is where a lot of times the world, who is not bothered with our convictions, right, they look at Christianity and see a bunch of hypocrites. Because there's a lot of hypocrites in Christianity. They say they're godly, but they're constantly threatening other people. They say they're godly, but they work discontent because God says this and I believe this. They can't even agree over the color of the curtains in their church right? Constant disgruntlement, constant argument. The chairs aren't even comfortable at this church. They're not good employees. They're not good bosses. They're mean, nasty friends because they're constantly judging them. Of course the world sees hypocrisy, but those evil people never think they're evil. They're always justified in what they think is right. The evil is putting their will in front of others, which is human nature, and it's taking justice into their own hands instead of trusting God with it. Satan will toss these people back and forth and back and forth, and all they do is cause chaos, and that's what we wrestle with. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, which is an authority structure. We wrestle against powers, and Paul's, I think, talking about spiritual powers here, right? People with principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age. And darkness is where you can't really see clearly. What we bring is light and truth. And when we do that, even in love, to say, no, it's wrong to do that. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to cut corners. I'm not going to give eye service or be a men pleaser. I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please God. That infuriates some people because they think you should be there to please them. That's your job. And when you simply and calmly and lovingly say, no, it's not my job to make you happy. 
It's my job to do my work to God's pleasure, not to yours. Well, when people want power or they want a higher principality, they're going to struggle with that. You're going to wrestle with those people, but they're evil people. They see a sweet, loving, gentle, caring spouse, and I've mentioned this before, that makes lunch for their spouse, and they mock that, right? They think it's horrible. They see kids that proclaim their parents as heroes and want to hang around with their, pyro, with their parents, and they react with scoffing. When's your gonna, kid going to be off on their own, right? Boy, if you honor your parents, there's not a big need to be off on your own. You're a family unit. You stick together. They see a colleague that works harder than anyone else and they call him a brown noser and they scoff them for making them look bad because you're working too hard. You make it look like we could all be doing more. And that's the truth. You could all be doing more. Talk about a battle. You can speak truth in that situation without partiality and you're going to be in a conflict. They see a boss that's fair with everyone and they, instead of appreciating the boss, they complain about the boss because they think they should be getting preference. They want preferential treatment. The world wants preferential treatment. And they have the gall to expect, if, if you're a boss that has the gall to expect that people do their jobs, then they grumble in their discontent because they're being asked to work too hard, right? If you do all these things Paul's talking about, there's an equal and opposite reaction from Satan's minions and from the world. And there will be a combat that needs armor, right? The rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual, the word hosts is actually added for the English. It's against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. And places is also a word. It might be in parentheses in your Bible. It means it's not in the original Greek. So against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. There's a combat going on in a spiritual world. And Paul makes it very clear. This isn't about politics and about policies. It's about a spiritual warfare that's happening. There are spiritual struggles. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul wants to make sure that we don't go out and think that this is a passage about political activism. He's making, he's going out of his way to say that. This is a, this is, this is a way in which we convert, instead of protesting and fighting the Romans, this is a way we actually win over their hearts, is that we do love right in front of them. And his instruction isn't to fight or to march or to protest. Look at the wording. His instruction is to stand against the wiles of the devil. Why? Why doesn't he want to fight? You know, shortly after the biblical narratives and epistles, the Jewish people do revolt. There's a Maccabean revolt. And the Romans squish them and destroy Jerusalem and level it to the ground. Not one block is standing on top of the other. The fight that the Romans want, the fight that we all want, never wins. You can fight these spiritual evil entities. You can battle them in the courts. You can combat them if you want, but you're never going to convince them to come to Christ and to obey God's will by fighting them. You're never going to bring someone to Christ by having them lose an argument with you. It doesn't work. And this is where people get frustrated. You can stand on your own beliefs, and that's plenty to get into the battle, but the temptation then is to preach those beliefs at people that want nothing to do with God. There's real power out there, but God does that work in the heart. We don't do that work through argument. There are heavenly places, according to Paul. These are locations that we can't see. These are political battles that we don't know anything about. 
And those that are given to the darkness of this world don't recognize the battles of that world. And those that are spiritually fighting are often doing it in darkness. And God does the opposite. For people that serve the heavenly realms, we do that in light. And the light is the word of God. It's the lamp unto our feet. It shows us what step to take because we know what God has told us to do. So even in doing what God tells us to do, sometimes it doesn't even seem rational to our eyes. It doesn't make sense to us. But because it's what the Bible clearly dictates, we do it anyways. And in that, the kingdom of heaven advances. I also thought of the darkness and light thing, <laughs> and I thought of the Lord of the Rings, um, and and the reaction that Gollum has, especially in the movies, I think it's acted really well. Whenever something really holy or good is brought, um, it, it of course burns Gollum, and it hurts him, like Elven Lambus bread. It burns us, um, and those kinds of things I think are just... Uh, a good image of people that walk in the darkness all the time, even though what they're seeing is good and holy and right, have some pity because if you're walking in darkness, if your marriage is miserable and you see a happy marriage, it kind of burns your eyes a little bit. It hurts to see that. If your kids are in total rebellion and nasty and brutish and harsh with their parents and mean, it is hard to see kids that just love and honor their parents and hug them and give affection to them. And when they talk about their parents, they talk about their parents with honor. That's hard to see. And it's hurtful to see. And you can see where maybe those people react that way, not because, um, not because as people they are mean, but, but as a people they are lost. And they're in darkness and the light hurts. Remember when you wake up in the morning and that light gets flashed on in your bedroom? It does. It takes a while to adjust. So get ready for a fight. Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So if you didn't get the stand point, Paul repeats it multiple times, three times. Take up the whole armor that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. And of course he used the word stand uh, back in uh, verse 11 too. So the goal here is just to stand, just to be godly and do it to let God win battles all around you while you stand in the place God told you, has told you to be. To be resolute, holy, and obedient. Satan can't beat that. So we, I love songs where it uses kind of the phrase, we will not be shaken. The idea of the Christian walk is to be a godly person and to just be that person in the place God has put you, wherever that place is. That's God's will. That's exactly what Jesus did. He stood in holiness, even though the Pharisees hated him for it, and he kept standing in that place until they hung him on a cross. So the goal here isn't to thrive in life and to be uh, exuberantly blessed in a worldly sense, but to be blessed in a spiritual sense is to be given the strength to stand. So the whole sermon series is on what's coming next, these pieces of armor that God gives us. These are things that we can waste. And we can not use them. And we can go into battle by being a really nice person and not put these things on. We're going to get, be, we're going to get killed, right? Spiritually speaking, um, this is the thing. And, and before we get into it, it, I think it's nice to know that Paul isn't just making this up. He's actually, this is an extended commentary or even reference to Isaiah 59 verse 17. 
For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. So in Isaiah, they talk about this armor, but Paul is sitting in a Roman jail cell with Roman guards standing outside of his door. He can sit and study all day what makes up a Roman outfit. So when Paul describes this armor of God that we put on, which Isaiah ascribes to God's ownership, uh, Paul adds details that befit a Roman soldier's full outfitting of gear, and he adds some things that for the, the new covenant with Christ we can put on too. So the goal here is to withstand and to stand, to know your place, to know where you're at, and to stand in it. Um, but the promise of this passage is struggle. Let's get into the armor of God. Verse 14, stand therefore, that's a fourth time for standing, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you were able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Apparently, it's a good thing to study the Bible. It's apparently the good thing to go through the Word of God at the end of the day. These verses are often popularized. They're often memorized. They're things we give in Sunday school. You should learn these verses. You should know them. For me, at least growing up, I could memorize all these things, but they kind of got lost in the fact that maybe I wasn't doing the first things first. right? So I can try to put on... The, the, the girding or the waste of truth. But if I'm not in a battle, that truth really just gets me into a bunch of arguments. Spiritually speaking, if I'm not loving my, my parents, if I'm not being kind with my siblings, if I'm grumpy at work because I don't like sweeping this floor the 10,000th time, then having the truth of the gospel is meaningless. This armor is worthless if you're acting like the world. When you're acting like a holy man of God, walking worthy, walking the light, walking in wisdom, then these things become a lot more relevant. So I'm going to come at this. And again, these verses, I've seen churches that do seven-week Bible studies where each week they take on another piece of the armor and do full discussions of truth in each of those pieces. I believe that those are wonderful sermon series and they're on the internet. You can go find them. I want to come at this and I'm just going to say there are different ways to process the armor of God. And I'm going to kind of handle it as whole. And, and the one I'll spend the most time with is, is the first one. And I think this is where people go with this. If you're looking at the armor of God like a Roman soldier, thinking of it in a few ways. First of all, this is the full gear set that's issued. When Paul does this list, he's describing every piece of gear that an, a Roman soldier gets. And this is what they get that makes them ready for battle. They don't get more. They don't get less. They get this set of things. And they're issued them right after coming out of boot camp. So the lowest soldier all the way up to the highest general, this is the gear they have. The only difference is the breastplates get more ornate and the helmet gets more ornate and the materials get better. So these different pieces of gear can get more elaborate and stronger and better, but it's still the same set of gear on each piece person. And I think that's encouraging for people that feel like they're new believers and they're getting into these kinds of battles because they're so joyful in the Lord and the rest of the world wants to squelch that joy a little bit. But you got the same gear that Paul had. You got the same gear that Billy Graham has. You got the same gear as any other soldier in Christ that they're going to get. And here's the gear. 
In Roman warfare strategy, and I love the history part of this, I'm gonna geek out a little bit. The goal was to stand. The way they trained their soldiers was to how to take territory and keep and hold the territory. So if I anoint my home and pray over it and bless it, and my home becomes the territory of God, then my job is to hold that ground. And as a soldier in Christ, I hold that ground diligently, right? Roman soldiers, if they were put in guard over something and they fell asleep on duty or or that thing they were protecting got stolen, they were killed for it. They were worthless soldiers if they didn't hold their ground. And their station was their ground. This is the argument John Adams had with the British soldiers that defended themselves at the Boston Tea Party. He said their job as a soldier is to hold their ground. And when people start throwing things at them, their territory is threatened. What do you think a soldier is going to do when their territory is threatened? They're going to gear up. They're going to get ready to fight. You've declared a battle with them when you declare a battle on their territory. When the government tells churches they can't open their door on a Sunday morning, that's not their territory. And at that point, soldiers should say, no, this is our ground. And you may not like us for saying it, but you don't have any right to tell us if we can meet on a Sunday morning or not. It's not your ground to hold. This is our territory. And those are things that are very clear in Roman philosophy and Roman thinking. The strategy was to stand and hold ground. Even in a battle with two armies face to face with each other, the Romans would line up, lock shields in what's called a phalanx, and they would hold their territory and they would let the other people attack them and they would shred them on the phalanx line. And we'll talk about how that works a little bit. But even in actual army-to-army battle, the Romans' first priority was to never give up ground, that when you push forward, you hold it forever. And when the kingdom of God advances, it doesn't retract. It doesn't give up that ground, right? You either can take the ground or you can't. And Romans did this because, A, they didn't want to lose soldiers. They armed them well. They equipped them well with what they needed. And they they won battles because they didn't lose as many soldiers as the other side. Another way to think of combat is to kill more of them than you get killed, and that's a worldly way of thinking about it. Spiritually speaking, the goal is to not lose your own soldiers and let the other soldiers just keep killing killing themselves on your line. Romans mastered distance warfare in a way that other armies previous hadn't. They used catapults, ballistas, trebuchets, and they, they projected weapons at the enemy, but they held their ground, and that was the whole point. So girding up. The girding of truth is to hold up your roads, bind your accessories. If you've got a a money pouch, you get that secured before you go into battle, right? You take all your valuables and you gird up or you put things into a belt and it helps you with movement. If you don't have to worry about things slopping around on your waistline, if you have kind of more of a kilt or a dress that goes down around your knees, you actually pull that up and you fasten it so that you have free movement with your legs. Truth is a lot like this spiritually. When you know the truth of the word of God, when you know what God says, it gives you freedom to be in these situations where you have to stand. If Satan can't blow you around from side to side, if you know the truth and you know how to hold your ground, right? So on whatever the issue is of the day, whatever contemporary thoughts are around various issues, you know what the Bible says and you just say, this is what the Bible says. You know the truth. It makes it so it protects your valuables protects the thing around you, and you don't get moved around. You've girded up. The breastplate of righteousness. The breastplates, even for low-level Roman soldiers that had kind of leather strap breastplates, those breastplates were the thickest, most formed leather or metal that you could get your hands on. 
and it's the primary protector of all their vital organs. Because humans, were soft. But when you put on God's armor, it's impenetrable. So as new believers, we actually get impenetrable breastplates to protect our vital organs. No matter what the world does to us, it can't kill our spirit. It just doesn't have access to our heart. So Caesar can kill Paul and martyr him, but he won't win Paul's spirit. At the end of the day, the breastplate of righteousness is impenetrable. And it's not our righteousness, it's God's righteousness. And we see that throughout the New Testament that does that. God ascribes righteousness to, that, to people that believe in the name of Jesus Christ. If I know I'm going to heaven, there's nothing this world can do to me that will really hurt me. might give me a scar on my shoulder, but you're not going to get my heart. I might have a prodigal son for a while, but I still love my son. I might lose my job, but I still love the people I work with. I still have a heart for them. We're soft. God is strong. We shot our feet. The gospel, the good news in the Greek, gospel is good news. The shotting of the feet allows Roman soldiers to dig in. In fact, some people say with the, uh, with the um, Alexandrian Greeks and the Romans, they were the first forces in history to master footwear for their soldiers. Footwear does two things for a good soldier. One, it helps you travel. You can't march long distances, and, and, and as an army, you can't move an army fast if they don't have good shoes on. If there isn't a gospel, the Christian message doesn't travel anywhere. If there's no good news to tell, there's not much spreading or moving that we're going to do as a kingdom, right? The second thing that shoes help Roman soldiers do is that whole theory of the phalanx is that each soldier locks their leg with the ground in a straight line, making it so no matter what hits their shield, that force goes right down through their leg into the ground. But that doesn't work without good footwear. So if your feet are all bloody and messed up, you're not marching and you're not holding ground. And this is true all the way up into today's warfare. So soldiers without good socks and boots, without shotting their feet properly, aren't going to be able to function. It's amazing how feet work that way. So the better the shoes, the better the army. The better your ability to tell the good news of the gospel, the better you are as a soldier. The more you can hold your ground, the more you can spread the gospel, even today. That preparation, it's interesting when you talk about shotting your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The word preparation there is actually used for a foundation. It's the starting place to build a house or a property. So the Greek word they use there for preparation is about how to build things on top of it. No matter what we do in spiritual battle, if the gospel isn't true, there's nothing to build on. I can't, I can't give people advice in life if they don't know that I'm coming from a place where I believe in Jesus Christ, right? It's the way that we prepare to hold our ground and do things. Paul uses above all at the beginning of verse 16, which implies that these next things are more important than the other things. <clears throat> And you say, yeah, but truth, righteousness, and gospel, those are really good things. They are. More importantly, no one's going to hear the gospel from you if you don't have faith, if you don't have the helmet of salvation, and you don't have the word of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit isn't working through you, the gospel's not going to get shared. You're just talking to people that don't want to hear it, right? You're throwing pearls to swine, so to speak. Above all, we take up these. So these are things we don't necessarily have on us at all times, right? There are times where good soldiers might not have the shield of faith in their hands. They've set it down for a little bit. 
they're struggling with their faith. That happens, right? But we take these up when we are about to go into combat, right? You pick up that faith because it's going to be what gets you through it. Here's what you do with shields in a Roman phalanx. You'd actually lock them. They're slightly curved, and that's to help arrows kind of bounce off of them. But you're going to stand as close to the other soldier as possible. You fellowship and get together with people, and you lock those shields to make one continuous literal wall. So we're talking about tower shields, not the little round bucklers. We're talking about Roman square tower shields that you should be able to duck down under, and they cover you from head all the way to foot, and you can set them in the ground and lock them there right with your 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 shod shoes. And the point is, the force of a full-grown man can pound at that shield with a club, a hammer, an axe, or whatever, as hard as they want, and they're just going to bounce off. That's what faith does. Spiritually speaking, anybody can come at you with anything, and with faith, you're, they're just going to bounce off. These shields were even used in what were called kind of tortoise formations, where the front row of soldiers would have them in a line, and the next two, three rows of soldiers would put those same square shields up over their heads, making a tortoise shell over the whole unit. Together, the church can move forward with faith, and the faith gets stronger when it's next to somebody else with faith. You need strength to hold that shield. They're heavy as heck. They're a place where you're going to rest your sword or your spear to make attacks with. They even ward off the darts of the, the, and Paul uses this, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Darts there as projectiles, arrows, spears, anything that comes at you with a point at the end of it is a dart, right? Roman shields often would have a large portion of the shield. They'd be bordered in a metal, but they would in the middle have leather that covered them. They, they, they weren't often solid metal. Sometimes they would have leather mixed in there. Or they would put a coat of leather over it and attach it to a metal shield. The point of the leather is you could moisten the leather, the leather, and if they sent fiery arrows at you, they would hit the leather and they would just go out. So the shields in a good tortoise formation would often have wet leather tacked on or put onto them if they knew the enemy had fiery arrows to shoot. Faith works the same way. Whatever comes at us, we know that God's still on the throne. doesn't matter how bad it looks, how fiery the arrows are, They hit our shields and we can just say, I have faith. God's on the throne. This is God's world. It's not your world. And at the end of the day, no matter what argument, no matter what attack, no matter what threat, all the way up to martyrdom, faith helps us know that this is part of God's plan. If I have to die to convince you that I love you, and I have to die with that kind of attitude to convince all the people around here that my faith is more powerful than your faith, then I'll do that. So martyrdom is often how the Christian message advances. The faith, that shield protects those people in those times. That's why you pick up your shield is because you need to have that faith when you get done. The last purpose of a shield in a Roman battle is at the end of the battle, they use the shields to carry the dead people back home. So if you came home on your shield, it meant you were dead. So they served as uh, bivouacs or or, uh, um, stretchers to carry people home on. In the same way, faith carries us home when we die. The last thing you want to do when you're on your deathbed in a hospital is doubt what's going on in front of you. And sometimes it takes other people with shields to come in and lock with your shield to bring strength to that formation to say, have faith in what you've believed your whole life. Don't let that go at the end of your days. 
the message of Christ that you believed when you were, you were young and you've had faith in your whole life, that same message is waiting for you when you pass. Shields carry us home. The faith carries us home. Helmets. Man, it's, just, it's just a beautiful image. You can see Paul sitting in a jail cell thinking this up. He used this in multiple letters. Um, but you just love that idea that he understands what he's talking about here. That helmet of salvation is to protect the mind. And really helmets were the most, the head was the most vulnerable part in a battle, especially in a battle with shields where you have to be able to see, meaning you have to get your head in a place where there's nothing between you and the enemy. So helmets would try to attempt to protect the head uh, protect the mind from what was coming. And it was also the death blows. As the Romans built their phalanx walls, the enemy built halber halberds and battle axes and clubs that could reach over the shield with enough force to poke through a helmet. So you wanted to get as thick a metal as you could from the Lord when it comes to your helmet. The helmet of salvation is the, where the vision is focused. Uh, I'm going to go to Thessalonians 5.8 to kind of talk about this a little more. But let us who are at of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul adds the word, the hope of salvation when he's in Thessalonians. And, and here he just says the helmet of salvation. And I think that might be for a little more clarity in Thessalonians. This isn't the idea that you are saved. It's the hope in salvation. So if people are going to give me a death blow to the head, I have to know that my hope isn't in making that person happy. My hope is that God will save me. My hope is in the salvation that God provides. This is not where my hope is. That's where my hope is. And that helps keep your mind straight. My hope is not in how big a house that I buy. My hope is not in the promotion that I get at work or don't get at work. My hope is not in whether or not my employees like me or not. My hope is not there. My hope is in the fact that I'm doing what the Lord's told me to do and I will be pleased. And when I get to heaven, my hope is I'm saved and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's my hope. That protects my head, keeps my head on straight. It makes it so that the girdle of truth matters because I have that truth locked in, right? I have the gospel of peace locked in. I have that shield of faith that's keeping me there and I got a helmet with the hope of salvation that protects me. I'm not saved now, but I'm hopefully I, I will be saved someday. So then you get to the last one, which I think is just the most exciting, the sword of the spirit. Notice that Paul does these in order of a Roman soldier gearing up. First you gird your loins, then you do this. And then the sword of the spirit, the thing that kills comes last. And killing here is not physical killing, of course. We're talking about a spiritual thing where someone actually gives their soul away to, from, they give up on darkness and they turn to light. How does that happen? How does someone change sides, right? Everything else that we have on this list is protective gear, but not the sword. The sword was used very intentionally by Romans. And instead of having large martial art, uh, we, we don't have Roman sword play martial arts today because the Romans didn't learn sword play with martial arts. They learned how to make one short, thick, fast, deadly stroke to make a kill stroke. They didn't do sword play and combat like we see in the movies. They'd be in a line with these shields. People would throw themselves at the shields. And when the opportunity provided itself at just the right time, right when the, maybe spiritually speaking, right when the spirit says it's time, you take that jab and you shoot right to their vital organs um, and you kill them. 
And that's in Roman warfare what the sword was used for. You kept the sword behind you most of the time so it wasn't in your way and it wasn't um, accidentally hurting you <laughs> when because the sword of the Bible, the, the sword is a two-edged blade. It can cut you too because we can be convicted by it. But in the same way that we're convicted by it, it can also convict other people and it can cut both ways. So the Romans made well-placed, well-timed, selective blows when they pulled out the word, right? The spirit has to tell us when to do that. So the training for a Roman soldier is you always had these things with you. You only take them up when you need to. And I think part of that where Paul's saying the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, means that if you want to have a sword on you at all times, you've got to put the word of God in your heart. You have to learn it. You have to memorize it. You have to be able to refer to it when you're in situations with people where they say, why are you doing this? And you can quote the, you can quote the verse and you can say, because the Lord's telling me this is the right thing to do. Why don't I gossip about other people? Because the Lord says don't gossip about other people. If you have an issue with other people, go talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. But don't do this thing where you tell somebody else your issues with a third person. That's evil. And you may think you're doing good, but it's not good because the Bible never says there's a situation for that where it's good. It's universal and says that it's an evil thing to do. So when we pull out the word of God, when people are questioning how we act and how we behave, we need to know why we do it. And that practice makes that perfect. Romans practice doing what they do with their swords and believers should do the same thing. You practice learning and using the word of God when you go to church with other believers. And we, and we practice and we spar with one another. And the church oftentimes are the most heated discussions about the Bible because we're debating the Bible. And that's how we get good at using the Bible when it comes time for real combat, right? The only combat that we need to do with that sword, again, I'm going to repeat it because Paul did four times, we stand. We hold our ground with that sword. If you want to invade my territory, I'm going to tell you with the word of God why I do what I do. You don't want to hear that, then don't stop attacking me. Stop attacking my home and my workplace and my family, right? Leave us to be. And you don't necessarily have to have the word of God put in your face all the time. But you want to keep pushing on our morality and how we choose to live. You're going to hear from the word of God why we do it that way. And that makes us holy rollers or Bible thumpers or whatever mockery the world wants to throw at us. The reality is we've already girded ourselves up with the truth. We know who's in charge. We have faith. We have hope and salvation, and we have the Word of God. We have all these tools at our disposal. It's, a, it's almost an unfair fight. There's a second way you can look at the armor of God, and I want to men briefly mention two other ways. If you're going to do a whole sermon series on these, you, you, you could break them down in a different way. One is this idea of progression, and I kind of mentioned that. These go in order of how a Roman soldier would gear up to go into battle. One could think then spiritually, maybe these are things that need to go in order too. So first you have to have truth. Um, so somebody has to tell you the truth in order for you to, to start looking at the world through an eye that sees truth instead of lies. And then righteousness, et cetera, et cetera. Righteousness, then, uh, righteousness allows for effective preparation. You can hear and see people. But then you have to know the gospel to share it. And then faith comes after that. So then I get stuck on this method. And that and though I have had people that explain it and get into it and really enjoy and are blessed by this perspective, I kind of struggle with it because faith comes after knowing the gospel. And how do you know the gospel without faith? And I don't quite get that if you're going to use that metaphor. 
Um, so you have to stretch a little bit to make all of that work. I'm going to go back to verse 13. Paul says you have to take up the whole armor of God. So I don't think order for Paul, though he uses a Roman actual gearing order, I don't think he's necessarily making a spiritual implication with that, but maybe he is. And again, there are people that are blessed with that. Here's a third way to think about the armor of God. And again, meditate. That's why I'm using that word. Think about the armor of God. Spend your time meditating on this. Put it into your heart and that'll be part of your sword when you talk to people. And this thought I think is kind of interesting too. In the same way that Paul lists these these elements of a Roman soldier, and you can say, oh, this is all you need. Another way to think about that is, this is all you need. And that Roman soldier didn't get more stuff. There isn't a longer list here. And it, it, it really, this is a pretty short list. This is a, a small list of very powerful things that equip a soldier. And I think that's an interesting perspective. You don't need to have a new job opportunity to to be a soldier of Christ. You don't need to get the next open slot at Feed My Starving Children to go serve the king. You don't have to be old enough and you can't be too old, right? So it's not about age. It's not about looks. And it's this armor of the Lord, as much as it's what it is about, I like to meditate on what it's not about. It's not about your ability. It's not about your intelligence. It's not about your, if you were only you had more charisma, you could win more people to Christ. It's not about whether or not you have a church building or how nice that building is or how nice the curtains are. It is not about whether or not you've got good, comfortable chairs to sit in. It's definitely not about waiting for other people to encourage you to be a soldier of Christ. Definitely not about that. It's not about being financially secure. It's not about doing it before you're too old and while you still have freedom, right? In fact, Paul used an example of people that are in a marriage relationship with kids and a job, and those are actually the things he's told people to do, right? It's really more about getting through Bible boot camp and going out and fighting battles. So everything that's on the list would be issued to a private in the army. And I love that image. This is not the armor of God for a fully mature Christian where you get these pieces throughout your life. You get these at the beginning of your Christian faith. That idea of, oh, I just need to, in a couple years, I'll serve the Lord. What a lie. What a lie from the pit of hell, right? You don't need to wait two years to serve the Lord. Start bragging about your mom or dad right now, tomorrow with the next person you talk to. Make every conversation you have praising your spouse, praising your kids, praising your parents, praising your boss, praising your colleagues, praising your employees. Start letting your words be truthful and go out with a light so that you bless people with your words. The battles will come to you. They'll come quicker than you would. You'd be surprised at how quick they come. But start doing it. Go to school tomorrow or go to your job tomorrow and start bragging about the people in your family and what godly people they are. That's not that's weird in the world's eyes and they'll make fun of you at first and then they'll get sick of you and then they'll attack you. Just wait. Get your armor ready, even if it's leather versus armor, and put it on, but you don't have to wait. I love that meditation. This isn't about collecting the set. You get the whole set issued to you upon beginning your faith. It's all you need to get going. So remember the modest instruction. Love people. That's it. That's how you pick the fight. And then express enthusiasm for the people. I think express love and life. 
Um, if you go to a Bible study or a great church, brag about your church or brag about your Bible study and invite people to come. Invite people to come until they're sick of you inviting them to come. And get ready for the darts to start coming. They'll start getting sick of you asking them to come. But that's what we do. We hold our ground and we, and, we're, and we love our ground. We make our territory look so appealing that other people want to be in our territory. But to come into our territory, you've got to come through Jesus Christ. There's only one way and narrow is the path. Put Jesus first in every conversation and then wait for the pressure of the world to come because they hate when people stand on the word of God. They hate it. Wait for the next political debate and you just say the Bible says. And those are fighting words to some people. And other people are like, wow, that person knows their Bible. You know, just wait. Pre prepare the share to share the gospel anytime that spirit tells you to strike. Right? And I, I love that the idea that the word of God is maybe that last piece of gear or whatnot, because you've got all these other pieces. If you're not holding a sword and you don't have the Bible memorized, that is not an excuse to leave the army. And it's not an excuse to leave the battle because sometimes that shield of faith is needed so the next guy over can use the sword. In fact, not all Roman soldiers struck at the same time. They worked as a team for holding their ground first, and then they had people in the front that used swords. But people in the back sometimes just had the shields over their heads to protect them from arrows. 18, Paul wraps it up, and I think he brings this all together. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. You don't know the word, word of God that good yet? Start praying, and you are doing the battle. Praying is good. You don't get all dressed up if you don't want to be ready to do it. So for all saints, soldiers that fight in, ar fight in armies, together looking out for each other, that's what being watchful is. All perseverance and supplication for all the saints. For a new believer to a mature veteran believer, prayer is the middle of what we do. It's the most important verb or action here. Everything else is a noun. Praying does everything. Having struggles with people at work, pray for them. Having struggles in your marriage or with your family, your kids, your parents, pray for them. Pray for yourself that those relationships can be healed. As a mature believer, Paul doesn't ask them to pray for his armor. He asks them to pray for his boldness in verse 19, for me, that utterance may be given to me that I might open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul's prayer is that when he opens his mouth, there's clarity when it happens. And I know that the first few times I've talked about my faith, it's like your tongue fumbles over its stuff, it's, itself. It's not natural to talk about God. But the more you do it, the better practice you get at it, and the more bold you get. The more you hear the word, the more the believe the truth, the spirit is there, the more the gospel of peace is in your heart, the more righteousness is blessing your life because you're kicking the butt of sin. The more you have faith, the more you have that hope of salvation at the end of your days, the more comfortable you get striking with that sword. And that's what Paul's praying for. He's praying that when he opens his mouth, it's a calculated clarity that his utterance, his speaking is clear. In fact, utterance in the Greek does imply clear speaking of people that would be explaining a philosophy. 
boldly has is 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 how we would interpret it courageous and not afraid of consequences so when paul asks for this utterance and boldness he's praying that playing he's asking for prayer that he speaks clearly and that he's not afraid of the consequences remember the next time paul gets to talk is probably to caesar He's going to go to the most powerful man in the known world at that time. And his job is to, and his hope is not that he avoids death. His hope is that he speaks without fear of death. And he does it with crystal clarity that he might win the heart of Caesar. What a prayer. Satan can take these greatest gifts, gifts that we have and he can use them against us. I think Paul... Often, and we can see hints of this at the book of Acts in his early career, Paul reacted to people bluntly um, when he refused to travel with other godly people. Um, he was he was often has had words that hurt relationships versus helping relationships. And it's interesting in Paul's uh, maturity in the faith, he's hoping that that doesn't happen, that his quickness of tongue speaking before he thinks, speaking without clarity, so it causes confusion instead of, help, instead of helping. His prayer is that that just doesn't happen. And I think it's an interesting prayer because Satan can use the gifts that we have against us. And in Paul's case, the gift that he has is clarifying the gospel for other people. And it's the thing he's worried about is that he'll be, he'll be so, he'll be fearful of what he says. And so there's a courage issue that he's praying for and that he won't say it clearly. And I think that's because Satan has in Paul's past used his bluntness and used his fear to get him to run from situations that maybe he regrets running from. Uh, that he has spoken in a way that has hurt a brother instead of helped a brother. And in that, God can then use those same gifts to help the kingdom. And at the end of his days, Paul knows that his opportunity is to do what he has in the past had issues with. Satan can take our greatest gifts and use them against us. If we're gifted musicians, the tendency can be to not respect people that are less gifted musicians. Take any skill set and put it in there. All right, if we're a gifted speaker or teacher of the world, word, the temptation can be to not respect other teachers of the word. Right? Or even if we're gifted teachers of the word, that Satan makes us feel like nobody wants to hear what we have to say. Or Satan makes us feel that we're not being cleared or that we stumble over our words, as I do all the time. At some point, boldness means, man, I don't care if I stumble over my words. I just want the Lord to use me. And I pray that my listeners cannot be distracted when I can't speak clearly. But I just want to be used. And I, with boldness, I'm going to keep doing that gift regardless of what other people say or what other people think, because Satan can use those people to stop me from using my gift. What a tragedy. God gives a gift to a person. You should use it. Paul then is getting ready to have this audience with Caesar, and he's praying for what he knows he needs to pray for because he's a mature believer. If God's given you gifts and you're, and you're not bold in using them, or you're not clear, you're not getting that expertise you need to be clear with your gifts, pray. That's what gets you ready to go. So you can put on all the armor of God. You can be a private in the army and really not be a very good soldier because you haven't exercised and practiced those gifts. You haven't trained, right? You can put on the armor of God and not wield it very well. You can have the thickest breastplate in the world and get turned around on a battlefield and your back is exposed. Don't do that. 
Paul, as a mature believer, simply prays for his utterance and his boldness to happen. But that you may know my affairs. Paul's going to wrap up the letter, verse 21. But that you may know my affairs and how I'm, I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister to the Lord, he'll make these things known to you. Now, in Acts, Colossians, Timothy, and Titus, uh, Tychicus gets mentioned there too. He's a messenger and he seems to be serving as kind of Paul's messenger. What a cool job, by the way, to get to hold the word of God for the first time and deliver it to the church. So this is a man that Paul trusted with God's word through him. Um, and I'm sure that we'll get to meet this guy in heaven because he is a loved brother. Um, and that's what we know about him is that he delivered messages. So being a good soldier in Christ, he's working with joy and happiness and serving Paul in that way. Verse 22, whom I've sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may take comfort, that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity Amen. The purpose of Tychicus's message, the purpose of Ephesians, is to not be stressed out when things look pretty dark. When the battles are raging, when you're sitting in a Roman prison, when Caesar has a cross with your name on it ready to go, be comforted. And Tychicus's job was to convey that spiritual state of mind that Paul had. I'm at total peace with it. I can think at work when times have been toughest over spiritual issues, this amazing peace comes over me. And I'll have brothers and sisters that'll come and say, Sean, is everything okay? How are you doing? What's going on? And all you can say is, you know, the tougher the situation, the more Lord gives me peace, right? I've spoken boldly. I've been truthful. I've been fair with people. I've said this and I've done this. And I, you know what? I feel like I'm doing what the Lord's telling me to do. And I just have peace because at this point, it's in God's hands. He can do whatever he wants with me. I gave up my life a long time ago. I think that's the heart that Paul has when he says verse 22, right? I'm sending Tychicus to you because for that very purpose that you can know what our affairs are. His affair is he's sitting in a jail cell and that he may comfort your hearts. So the situation doesn't match the spiritual state. And that's what he wants Tychicus to convey to the Ephesians. You, my, you know my situation. My affair is I'm sitting in a jail cell. What you don't know is the relationship I'm forming with the guard. What you don't know is how the Christians in Rome are getting stronger and stronger and stronger. What you don't know is the blessing that I'm giving in this situation, how the Lord's been blessing me. Right? What you don't know is how the power of God is just flowing through us here. You should know that that walking in the light, walking worthy, loving one another, walking in wisdom, that's what works. And it's still working even though I'm in a jail cell. Does that comfort your hearts? No matter how bad it is, it's where God put you. Stand and hold your ground. And if the Caesar's going to put you on a cross, peace to the brethren. Peace to all the brothers and sisters. We know that's our path. We know the world hates us. We know that, the, that those that are lost in sin, even if they call themselves believers, the hate and the rage and the chaos in their heart is torture. But the peace and the joy and the love in my heart, peace, joy, faith from God the Father, it's not natural to have it. 
It is not a natural thing to have that kind of peace and joy in your heart. But that's what's in my heart. When Paul ends with grace and peace, that's how he opened the letter. This is the whole point of Ephesians. Have grace with other people and have peace in your heart. It's all going to be good. You got the armor of God. You have a hope of salvation. There's nothing this world can do to us as believers, either in Paul's day or in our day today. Nothing that's going to touch what's in our heart. We don't serve our masters. We serve God. And we want to show our masters that by serving God right in front of their face. There's comfort in that. And I hope there's comfort as this is the last we hear from Paul in the book of Ephesians. Imagine this is the last time as an Ephesian, this is going to be what you hear from your, your friend, that guy who helped walk you into the faith or that girl that walked you into the faith. Imagine the adoration and the love you have for that person, the gratefulness you have. Well, these Ephesians, that's how they feel about Paul. He's the guy that walked them through it for the first time. He showed them their path. And you know in your heart that that guy you love is going to die in a horrible Roman way. And you think, what a broken heart they must have had. And Paul writes a letter of comfort. Don't have your heart broken over me. I'm going to a good place. So Ephesians, in summary, is Paul saying, family, brothers and sisters, I'm in present, I'm ready for death, and I'm right where God wants me to be. Be comforted in that. It's all good. Carry on with what you're doing, live your faith, and maybe if you're lucky, you'll have the peace that I have. But if you want that, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, love one another as best you can, put on the full armor of God. Amen. And that's the Ephesians. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your blessing. Thank you for this letter that Tychicus uh, did his job. And he did it with joy. And not only did he carry this letter, but the church reproduced this letter many, many times. So we have it. We have it on good historical evidence that this is the letter Paul wrote to his friends in Ephesus. Lord, thank you for bringing, inspiring Paul, giving him your Holy Spirit so that he could speak to our hearts. Lord, as we go through struggles in life, they're not, probably not as bad as a Roman prison cell. But Lord, give us the same peace and comfort that Paul has in this situation. Help us to know that God's still on his throne that we have a hope in that salvation, Lord. Help us to walk with the, with, our, with the gospel of peace, that the way we carry ourselves is just peaceful, Lord. Uh, help us to have righteousness in our life, to have truth in our life, that those are things we just always have. We always carry them. We don't have to take those up, that the truth and the righteousness, they're just with us, and the peace, they just endure with us every day, all the time. Lord, I pray for that for everyone listening to this. Lord, sometimes we have to take up a shield and a helmet and a sword. And sometimes we have to actually go into a battle, Lord. And I just pray that you bless us in those things. Help us to be ready and prepared to take up those things. That we know how to use them. We know how to use them with grace and love. Lord, our job isn't to kill people physically. Lord, it's to kill the darkness and the lies that are in people's hearts. And we do that through love and grace. We, we act supernaturally lovingly towards our parents and our spouses and, our, and our, the people we work with. Lord, help us to be supernaturally, um, unintuitively godly, that people are confounded by how we behave because we act so much like you and so little like the world, and we've put those things away. Lord, bless us in what we do. As the battles come and the full armor is needed, Lord, we just ask that you bless it. It's your armor that we're borrowing and we put it on, Lord. But we, we thank you for the gift 
Thank you for the Holy Spirit to direct our words. Um, and we just ask, Lord, that you fill us with those things. Thank you for the joy that you give. Thank you for the joy that can overcome our Roman prison cell and the peace and the comfort that Paul has in that environment, Lord. He, in the flesh, had to be terrified. Uh, and in the spirit, Lord, he just knows he's right where you want him. So bless us today. Bless uh, us this week, this month. Give us peace and joy and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. We had one person watching that. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.